We have some exciting news to share. Future Hindsight is now in partnership with Lyceum, a new audio platform for the curious and creative to listen, learn, and connect. Sounds like it's a perfect place for us. Here's a message from the founder. Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance. And so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there. We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, Download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play, or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Joshua Goldstein. He's Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University and Research Scholar at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. An award-winning scholar of international relations, he's written widely on war and society. Most recently, he co-authored A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. We'll be talking about using nuclear energy to decarbonize, which is to say, to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and whether replacing coal power plants with nuclear power plants is viable for a clean energy future. Nuclear energy is clean in a couple of ways. One, it does not produce carbon emissions when it generates electricity. It's clean on the carbon side. It's also clean on the air pollution side, in sharp contrast to coal, which kills a million people a year from air pollution, particulate matter that it puts out. It's also clean in terms of the footprint on the environment. Nuclear power is so concentrated that a very small plant with a very small throughput of fuel and output of waste can replace something with a much larger footprint and much larger throughput. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, good to be with you. Your book is really well argued and is primarily about how we can reduce our carbon footprint in producing electricity. And you say that we need to shut down dirty power plants, build renewable, but also have nuclear because renewables alone are not going to be enough. Tell us why. Well, if you look at what's really going to be required to solve climate change, which is decarbonizing the world economy in the next 30 years, that's a massive undertaking. And at the same time, we're going to need to start sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. That uses a lot of energy. When you add it all up, it's just a massive amount of clean, cheap, scalable electricity that we need to add in the next 30 years. And there's nothing that can go that fast and get us there alone that doesn't include a big dose of nuclear power. It's the most concentrated power source by far, and it can scale really quickly, as we know from Sweden and France, which I hope we talk about. Tell us about what Sweden did and how they did it. 
Sweden did what the world needs to do now. Sweden cut its carbon emissions by half in 20 years. It's not quite as fast as the world needs to go now, but it's on that scale. Sweden did this by building nuclear reactors one after the other in the 1980s. They actually did it because the environmentalists demanded it so that they would stop damming the rivers for hydroelectricity. And when they built the reactors one after the other like that, they were economical because the designs were standardized. They were carbon-free. It's inherent to nuclear power. And it was good for the economy. Electricity was cheap. The Swedish economy grew. And then emissions dropped in half. All the while, the GDP went up by 50% in that same period. Yeah, that's sort of like the proof is in the pudding. So by comparison, you talked about Germany and how they used to have more nuclear, but now basically they have moved away and are burning fossil fuels. What happened with Germany? Because I think that's a great example to compare. Germany for the last decade has had energy transition policy. And that has called for closing down nuclear power plants, which are carbon-free, while building carbon-free renewables, wind mostly and some solar. They've spent hundreds of billions of dollars on this, and yet there's been virtually no reduction in German emissions, with the result that per person, Germany and Sweden have about the same GDP, but Germany has twice the carbon emissions that Sweden does. And the difference is exactly in nuclear power. When Germany closes off nuclear power plants, as they're doing, and builds renewable, they're just replacing one carbon-free source with another, and they're not reducing coal and natural gas. So Germany's just building a new coal plant right now. They're building a new big natural gas pipeline from Russia. So they're actually building up their fossil fuel infrastructure. Something like 40% of German electricity comes from coal, and that's not going down because they're using the renewables to replace nuclear power instead of using renewables to replace coal and then maybe shut down nuclear power some decades in the future if you can really make a renewable economy work. It's been a disaster for Germany talking the talk of solving climate change but actually not reducing carbon emissions, and they're missing all their targets now. Uh, we're more scared of nuclear power than scared of climate change is basically what they're saying. Right. So this is a good time to ask a question about what people are afraid of. And I think in many ways it's about nuclear waste. But one of the things that you make abundantly clear in the book is that we need to always consider the alternative. So right now we are basically dumping garbage into the atmosphere, which is much more significant than nuclear waste. But tell us about nuclear waste and why are people scared and why should we not be scared? There's several things people are scared about with nuclear power, all of which should be compared with the dominant fuel that is used in the world now to produce electricity, which is coal. Coal kills something like a million people every year. That's in addition to its effect on climate change. And yet coal use continues because we're not able to replace it with nuclear power and renewables are not able to fill that gap. What people should be afraid of is coal, but what people are afraid of, nuclear power, it starts with radioactivity, I think, and goes back to the early Cold War years because people were terrified of nuclear weapons. 
not nuclear power, but weapons. And this came out of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. And then for my generation that grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we were hiding our heads under the desks in school to prepare for nuclear war. It's a terrifying experience. So there's a kind of generational trauma around nuclear weapons. People were afraid that nuclear power was going to be radioactive. Now, I need to back up and say something about radioactivity because it's not something weird and unnatural. It's a part of the natural world. Radioactivity comes from these big atoms like uranium that were created in the last supernova before the creation of the sun and the earth. They spun off into the earth, giving off little bits of energy. It's like a super battery takes the supernova energy and then gives it off little by little over billions of years. That's what keeps the core of our earth molten. That creates the magnetic field and allows the atmosphere to stay in place. And we wouldn't be here without it. So radioactivity is very natural. Small amounts of radioactivity are present all over the place. Large amounts of radioactivity, like in the atomic bombings or people who went in with, without protection into the Chernobyl accident right into the heart of a nuclear reactor and got very large amounts of radiation, that's certainly very bad for health. But small amounts are not. But people are afraid of them. So the point is, little amounts of radioactivity are not harmful. The salient thing about nuclear waste is how small it is. Nuclear power is so concentrated, a million times more concentrated than coal. If you took all the spent fuel from all the U.S. nuclear power for 60 years and put it in one place, it would fit inside a Walmart. And the fear of the waste stands in for this general fear that radioactivity is some kind of a virus-like force that if it gets out can destroy the world. And it's just not like that at all. We live with radioactivity every day. Finland is building a repository for their spent nuclear fuel. And they've calculated a study of what would happen if everything went wrong putting it away, the canisters were already cracked, the clay layer disappeared, all the protections went away. And then a thousand years from now, somebody lived their whole life on the most contaminated square meter of land, got all their water and food from it, and how much radioactivity would they get? And it turns out to be about the amount as eating a bunch of bananas per year. Because bananas are slightly radioactive, they contain potassium, and it has a little bit of radioactivity in it. So you, you have to talk about it in terms of scale. You don't want to go up the scale to jumping into the middle of the Chernobyl accident. But at the bottom end of the scale, we live with radioactivity all the time. Nuclear waste has never hurt anybody, and it's unlikely it ever will. Thank you for explaining that. I have a question about how nuclear waste has a half-life, which I did not understand. Can you explain what that means and therefore how this fits into how we can think about nuclear waste? The radioactive atoms like uranium give off energy. That's radioactivity. And the uranium has a so-called half-life of billions of years. So that means, you know, a billion years from now, it's still got half the radiation, and then another billion years, it's got half of that and so forth. That's the half-life dwindling down towards zero. Most of the elements in nuclear waste have much shorter half-lives. That's why we put it in the swimming pool for a few years. Most of it cools off. But the long-lived ones are the ones people are concerned about, plutonium, uranium, that are going to be around for billions of years. 
how can we ensure that nuclear waste remains isolated for hundreds of thousands of years when we don't even know if we'll be around by then? And the answer is we can't. We can't keep it isolated for sure. Possibly tens of thousands of years from now, some will leak out. It's just that when it does, it won't be a big deal. And certainly not as big a deal as allowing climate change to decimate the planet in the matter of a few generations, which is what we're looking at now. It sounds like we definitely should build new plans. I have two questions about that. One is that there are plans that are being shut. How hard is it, or how easy is it, to power them back up if we want to do that, which definitely doesn't look like we will. But hypothetically, what would it take? What's very valuable in an old plant And the same thing in an existing coal plant is the connection to the grid, the siting, uh, licensing of the site, the community relations, everything that goes into a power plant. And what we really need to be doing in the upcoming 10, 20 years is to take existing coal plants and convert them to nuclear power. So ideally, for a new coal plant, you could keep everything except the coal side of it. Instead of burning coal to boil water, you use nuclear power to boil water. You keep the turbines, keep the generator, keep the grid connection, keep the cafeteria, the parking lot, all of that. And that really helps the economics. Now, to do that, you need new generations of reactors that are now just being designed called small modular reactors. The first ones are going to come online around the middle of this decade. So maybe five years from now. These are smaller reactors that are designed to be built centrally and sent to where they're going. And that's all about the economics of it. Right now, we build a nuclear power plant as though we were building the new Tappan Zee Bridge or some big infrastructure project, big concrete laying public works projects. And they all go over budget. Nuclear plants more than the rest even because of all the regulation around it. It's not a workable model. We need something that's affordable because it has to work in the poorer parts of the world where most of the energy demand is going to be in the next 30 years. And it has to be able to drop into a coal plant or a closed nuclear power site and so forth and generate electricity cheaply enough that people will stop using fossil fuel and start using the nuclear power. So the small modular reactor built in a factory or shipyard and then sent out by rail, by barge, by truck to uh, where it's going, and then plugged in and starts generating electricity. It also can work for desalination. It can work for generating hydrogen, which is an important part of decarbonizing transportation and industry. So this is where I see the future of nuclear power going. When you ask, are we going to reopen the existing nuclear plants, I'm not so concerned with the existing plants, even though it makes no sense to close them down. It's counter to everything we're trying to do with climate. Keep them going as long as we can, yes. You know, that's a great source of carbon-free power. But meanwhile, accelerate these small modular reactors so that we can send them out everywhere. And China's small modular reactor is designed to go on a barge, be sent out to some port in any country, dock at the shore, and send the electricity and the hydrogen and the desalinated water onshore. That's a model that could really scale quickly. 
And because nuclear power is so concentrated, it does inherently scale quickly. That's what France showed when they built nuclear reactors. In 15 years, France took their electricity grid, which was primarily fossil fuel powered, and just switched it over to clean nuclear power. That's a really fast transition. And there's nothing else that can do it that fast. And speed really matters now because we need to solve climate change quickly. So nuclear power is a thing that can go that fast, and that could be a real game changer. Hmm. I was really surprised to read about this, that basically it's a prefab yeah. nuclear power plant that you can build someplace else and plop down, yep. and then you can cut it away when you no longer need it there. How long does that take as opposed to, let's say... <laughs> the equivalent of building a Tappan Zee bridge type of yeah. nuclear plant without any regulation problems. Let's just assume you're building it from scratch and discount the problems with regulation. Just yeah. compare the time of building. So the time of building on the large plants that we're building now, I think it's been more than a decade on these Georgia plants. The places that are good at building them, and South Korea in particular, and China, can do it in four or five years. The key to those large plants is to standardize the design. This is what France did with a standardized plant, and then South Korea. They're building the same thing over and over again and shaving the costs each time they do it. The hope with the small modular is just to be able to build them in a year or two. Nobody is quite sure because we haven't seen one actually come through to being finished and going online. But that's the idea, is speed up the process and bring down the cost. Right. China is building a small modular one right now. Is that correct? That's right. China's on about the same track as the United States to have one in production by the middle of the decade. The difference with China is mostly on the big reactors because they have a new model of big reactor, a gigawatt reactor, we call it, um, that's similar to the ones we're trying to build in Georgia here in size, but it's a workhorse reactor of Chinese design that they can now build one after the other the way the South Koreans have done on their large reactor. And it hasn't been announced what their plans are with it, but I understand there's a good chance they're planning to build 100 or 150 of those. That's more than the entire U.S. nuclear fleet. And so you may see in the next decade that China's building quite a few of these large reactors, and that'll take a, a big bite out of Chinese coal. And then the smaller reactors they can use in particular for export to barge them all over the world, and that's a great export product. By the way, a lot of good jobs to be had in creating reactors for export which could be American jobs or could be Chinese jobs, or both. So I have a question about how long these plants last. My understanding is that they're really only functional for 60 years. Why is that? Well, that's not quite true. I think one in Florida was just re-licensed for up to 80 years. They need refurbishment as they go along. They're initially licensed for usually 40 years and then extended for 20 and then extended again. The inherent thing that's the cause for needing maintenance as they go along is that it's very hot inside of a nuclear reaction, as you can imagine. So you need to take it offline and make sure that it's all shipshape and replace anything that needs to. And with proper maintenance, they can keep going for 
decade after decade. The reason we're shutting them down in the United States is not actually that they're old. And the reason we're shutting them down is that people are afraid of them. I think a quarter of the electricity in New York comes from the, the two plants that are being shut down soon. We had in Massachusetts one nuclear power plant, not even a very big one, and it shut down last year in June, taking down with it more clean electricity generation than all the wind, solar, and hydroelectricity ever built in Massachusetts. So that's a lot of clean electricity to take off the grid. While we're shutting down nuclear power and building renewables, Massachusetts and New York are building massive new natural gas pipelines. So we're replacing nuclear with natural gas, which is not a clean fuel. Yes, definitely not a clean fuel. In what way is nuclear energy clean? Nuclear energy is clean in a couple of ways. One, it does not produce carbon emissions when it generates electricity. It's clean on the carbon side. It's also clean on the air pollution side in sharp contrast to coal, which kills a million people a year from air pollution, particulate matter that it puts out. It's also clean in terms of the footprint on the environment. Nuclear power is so concentrated that a very small plant with a very small throughput of fuel and output of waste can replace something with a much larger footprint and much larger throughput, hundreds of times larger in the case of fossil fuels and vastly larger in the case of hydroelectricity that floods large regions. Hydroelectricity is great from a climate change point of view because it's carbon-free, but it does decimate the local ecology. And right now, the Mekong River watershed in Southeast Asia is just being destroyed by many hydro dams going up. So nuclear doesn't have any of that. It's small site, small footprint, small throughput, no air pollution, and no carbon emissions. I have a question about timing, because this sounds like this is going to take some time. If we want to reduce by 2030, which some people have said, like we only have 10 more years really to significantly reduce our carbon footprint. And if we want to do that, then I don't know whether we can move quickly enough with nuclear plants. Well, nuclear is the fastest way to decarbonize. We have 30 years to get to zero or even negative emissions. We need to get moving in that direction rather sharply in 10 years. Right now, if you look at the graph of world carbon emissions, it's going up, 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 up. And it hasn't even flattened out, much less gone down. What it needs to do is go sharply down. We need to do everything. You reach into your bag of tricks and you pull out solar power and energy conservation and moral pleas to people to fly less and eat less meat and efficiency measures and, you know, all the renewables, all everything that you can, and you're still only halfway to what you need. And you look in the bag of tricks, there's nothing else in there but nuclear power. That's how I see it. It needs to pick up about half of the burden, and everything else combined is the other half, and then we have a shot to actually solve it. But, boy, we need to move fast and big to do it. So what would you say to everyday Americans to make rapid headways in putting more nuclear power online to decarbonize? I really think the small modular reactors are the best hope politically and psychologically. 
if we make them work, which we have to, it will also be the best hope economically. The small reactors, because they're smaller, they're less scary. And because it's new designs, they are actually safer and produce less waste, but that's not really the point of them. The point is that they're politically more acceptable. Some of the groups like Sierra Club that have been so opposed to nuclear power may be starting to open up to the possibility of these small reactors. And in Congress, there's been a bipartisan consensus in favor of them. A big majority passed the bills to fund research and development to develop these small reactors. Everybody from Cory Booker on the left, who's been a big supporter, to Jim Inhofe on the right, the big climate change denier, the guy with the snowball in the Senate. To me, if you want to solve climate change, it's best to find those places where you can get some consensus and not hit your head against the wall, but actually move forward. And small modular reactors is one of those. That's where I feel that Americans can unite around a program that doesn't have the same fears and the same economics as the old big nuclear plants, but does produce the same carbon-free electricity for climate change. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I'm hopeful that the uh, potentials of nuclear power mean that we do have a way that we could solve climate change. And I'm hopeful that human beings are creative enough and resilient enough and clever enough that we can figure out that this is a route forward. We have what we need to move forward and tackle this big problem. It's, it's a great big problem, but we can do it. Terrific. Thank you for your book, and thank you for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. My major misconception about nuclear power is in the way that I thought about the safety of nuclear waste. It isn't, of course, that nuclear waste is not radioactive. It's that I never thought about nuclear waste in comparison to carbon dioxide, the waste of burning fossil fuels that is currently being dumped freely into our atmosphere. When you put it this way, nuclear power is a no-brainer. But what about Fukushima, you say? I went back to our guest to ask him exactly that. Here's what he said. The diluted radioactive water from Fukushima is going into the ocean where it gets tremendously more diluted and isn't harming anyone. Fukushima, the second worst nuclear power accident in history in which nobody died, shows how extremely safe nuclear power is. So, just to be thorough, I went and checked out the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution's website, which verifies that the highest risk is to the workers at the site and not to the general population or the ocean. What this conversation did bring home to me is that we shouldn't give up on nuclear power as a source of energy right now until we have enough wind and solar up and running. We don't want to reverse course like Germany and start new coal-burning plants in lieu of existing nuclear power. Next week, our guest is Mark Jacobson. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering, as well as a senior fellow of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. He has focused his career on better understanding air pollution and global warming problems and in developing large-scale clean, renewable energy solutions. We'll be talking about the barriers to building out a global network of nuclear power plants 
such as cost overruns and the time it takes to build them. Today, we find that nuclear is not even a possible solution to global warming that takes so long between planning and operation, between 10 and 19 years, so like around 14 to 15 years on average. Even if you wanted to solve the problem, you can't. Today is 2020. If you have to wait 15 years, that's 2035 before you could even get one more nuclear plant up. And we need 80% of the problem solved by 2030. So if you have to solve 80% of the problem in 10 years and you can't even get one nuclear power up in 15 years, it's not even a potential solution whatsoever. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbul. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.